Bonjour, Mickey Amo Sandrine. Oh my God, is this, is this an episode on code switching? Is that what we're doing? Bonjour, Mickey Amo. I mean, like, what is this? That's Hola. a good question. Let's try that Hola. again. Je suis Bill Van Patten. Aren't you excited you're here with such professionals? Let's try that again. No, I loved it. That was great. There was just a, some stuff about code switching on Facebook the other day. So <laughs> I grew up code switching, so it's good. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. All right. Hola. Lundi. Lundi. Montag. All right, here we go. Buongiorno, me chiamo Sandrine. Bonjour, je m'appelle Christa. Welcome to Step Into Mondays, uh, the show where we bridge the theory to the practice. And we don't just talk theory, we show you how it works. So Christa, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. I'm super excited about today's show. I bet you are. And I was going to say, hey, why don't you ask me about what I did last weekend? And then I had flashback about the episode that just dropped Thursday about all of that. And I am not going through that again. And you correcting every single one of my mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us why you are so excited about uh, today's recording. Uh, well, that is because we have a very special guest that, you know, of course, you asked me to introduce, and he really doesn't need an introduction because he is the diva of SLA, um, Dr. Bill, Bill Van Patten. Um, gosh, what can I say about him? He's a researcher, a speaker, an author. He's written so many books that I've used in my classes for as a student and as a professor. Um, he's written textbooks. He's done his own podcast. Um, I oh. know that inspired me a little bit with our podcast. There are two shows that have inspired me. That was one of them. And and so I know. So what else can I say? But welcome to the show, Bill. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your language proficiency journey? You said you grew up code switching. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in a trunk in Idaho. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's a Judy Garland movie. I just, I just watched the movie Judy the other day and I was thinking about that movie. Anyway, no. Um, uh, I grew up here in California. I'm originally from the San Jose, South Bay area. And I grew up with my Mexican side of the family, which was my mother's side of the family. My dad's family from Indiana. I never really met his family until he died. And then I had to, when I had to go back east for uh, to take care of those arrangements. And I finally met on my dad's family. Um, so I grew up on my mother's side of the family. And of course, we grew up speaking Spanish and English. And so we code switched from, from a very early age. Um, so yeah, and, um, and I learned French as a sec, I guess a second language, if you consider Spanish and English sort of like first languages, former bilingual languages from birth. Um, and so I learned French later in life. Um, not, not très bien, I have to say, I just, it's okay. My French is just okay. Um, and, uh, I don't know what else to say. Um, what got you interested in the whole second language acquisition 
process. I think it was growing up as growing up with multiple languages and watching that process was always in the back of my head. I've always been fascinated with language ever since I was a little kid. And um, I wound up becoming a science nerd, believe it or not. I was a shy, believe it or not, I was a shy, quiet little barrio I don't kid. Believe that now. Come on. I was a shy, quiet barrio <laughs> kid. I was picked on. I was bullied. And so I retreated into science. I, 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 I started learning to do all my own little experiments when I was a kid. And so I really got like the science streak in me. And then I sort of blossomed when I got, I got into high school, the latter part of high school. And I started thinking about alternatives to science. And I still wanted to dabble in science. And so I started in science in college, but nah, I thought that's just that's just too nerdy for me. Then you know that's just there's a there was a creative side of me that just was not being fulfilled. Not that scientists can't be fulfilled creatively, right? But um, not many diva scientists in the world, right? You know, it's just it's, they're hard to find. <laughs> um, except Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think he's a diva, but that's another story. Um, and so, um, so I, I wound up stumbling upon linguistics when I got to grad school. I actually started grad school in Latin American studies. And so I uh, had a teaching assistantship in Spanish to be able to, you know, afford grad school, right? In Latin American studies. And so long story short, um, a professor saw me teaching. He says, you have a really scientific mind the way you talk about things. I go, really? And he goes, you ever try linguistics? And I go, what's that? (laughs) <laughs> and then he said, well, it's the scientific study of language. I go, really? And so I left Latin American studies and the rest is history. Ah. There you go. There you go. Cool. So I was able so to take teaching? that little, sci- yeah, I take that little science streak in me and melded it with my interest in language. And yeah. I love that. A meshing of thing. Was teaching ever on your radar as you were thinking science or whatever, or did that come with the linguistics? That came, that came, that evolved um, in graduate school. Yeah, okay. it came, it came after I got into linguistics to start thinking about things. And I started thinking about the implications of what I was learning for language teaching and language learning in classrooms and so on. So, yeah, I don't know if you all know this, but I'll say this about, this is not bragging. This is, this is actually truth. If you look, go back and look at the history. Um, when I got started in the field, um, there was a big split between ESL and what we call foreign languages, a term I hate. Mm. Um, and so people thought foreign languages were learned differently than second languages. And so whatever people were saying about ESL couldn't be said about foreign languages. And I thought that just from, from what I was learning, that just didn't make any sense. And so I did my early work on showing that classroom learners of a quote unquote foreign language do the exact same things linguistically and mentally and psychologically, whatever you want to call it, as any second language learner does in any context. And that was actually my dissertation research and then my early research. And so I was one of the first people to come out and say, hey, people, foreign language learning is just like any other kind of language learning. Oh, I cut holy you know what for doing that. But I, per- <laughs> I, I, I persevered. The reception had to have been great on that. <laughs> oh, I, I was raked over the coals in the 80s for a while by certain people in, in the foreign language profession. But Eventually, eventually people came around. Now, look, here we are in 2020. I think people kind of like, nah, don't think that so much anymore. But yeah, definitely. Well, cool. Well, thank you um, for that. We wanted to talk to you. Sandrine and I, have, we, you know, we're kind of PFFs, right? Those professional colleagues that we bounce things off of each other. And we, uh, we're both post-secondary. Um, 
but we work with K-12 teachers mm-hmm. and so we do a lot of different workshops and things like that. And one of the issues that always comes up and we just want to, you know, bang our head against a wall is the whole idea of error correction. And so we thought, man, we need somebody to, to really dig into this topic with because we just feel like we're broken records about it <laughs> with certain people. And so, um, you know, we want to know, I mean, what, what do you, what is your opinion on error correction? I mean, I kind of know, but, you know, it's such a huge deal for language teachers. Mm-hmm. And so we just want to know what, what is your feeling about this idea of error correction? All right. I can tell you my feeling about it, but I'd rather tell you my conclusion. Okay, that's good. <laughs> based on research. And I do have a feeling about error correction. I really do. <laughs> But, but <laughs> well, we can't go in both. <laughs> we'll come back. Both. We got plenty of time. Go right. ahead. I'm going to have to pour a martini for that one. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, um, the, the re, and let's, let's differentiate between two kinds of error correction. Error correction as part of interaction or oral language interaction between teacher and student or native speaker, non-native speaker, or whoever you want to call it, whatever, you know, two people talking, interacting with each other. There's quote unquote error correction in that and then there's error correction on paper when you're looking at students' written work or compositions or whatever. They're completely separable things and they should never be mixed together. Um, I, so let me first talk about the interactional kinds of error correction stuff. And you might get somebody on the show who's gonna disagree with me, but I challenge them to cite chapter and verse the research. There isn't any strong or even good research that supports any significant role for error correction in language acquisition in those kinds of interactional domains, right? There, there, there is, there's a little sliver of research about what's called feedback, but not error correction. Feedback in the sense of, so Krista says to, to me um, something like, um, uh, uh, we, we decided to devil down. And I look at her, I go, devil down? And she goes, yeah, we devil down, you know, we, we're digging our heels. I go, I've never heard devil down. And then I go, oh, you mean double down? She goes, is it double down, double down? That's feedback in a community of interaction. And notice that that is actually not correcting grammar, but that's actually a feedback on lexical choice, that maybe she heard double in the past as devil and so on. And so she was saying devil down and um, but it's double down, you know, and so that kind of comes out in our interaction. Um, there is a sliver of research, not a lot, that that kind of feedback and interactional stuff um, can help with um, some vocabulary stuff and some basic communication things like taking turns. No, it's not your turn yet. Shut up, you know. I mean, you know, so those kinds of things, it can help with that. But there's not a shred of evidence that it helps anything that has to do with the formal system of language. That is what people like to call grammar or even the sound system. Although there's maybe, Sue Gass talked about this in 2003, and I don't think it's changed much since then. Um, there, are, there are low-level sound issues, you know, real small, small pronunciations that are really not big deals. But some of those things seem that they might be amenable to feedback during interaction, but not the sound system overall. So the, so the research on feedback is, is really not particularly strong. And a lot of people like to say it is. There's a lot of work 
on what's called recasts in mm-hmm. interaction. That, you know, that's when you rephrase what somebody says, you know? Um, so, um, so Krista says, devil down. I go, oh yeah, yeah, double down. I know what you mean. She goes, yeah, yeah, double down, double down. And then she goes on, right? So that's like a recast. Um, and, uh, but that research hasn't yet to connect that feedback, that recast with actual acquisition. That they, they show how something immediate can happen in an interchange, but it doesn't show how there's any change in the underlying linguistic system, either immediately or even over time. So, so even though there's a ton of research on recasts and there are people who really promote recasts, oh, they're really good. We have all this evidence. Well, the evidence is only in the moment and there's no evidence that has a lasting impact or that it does anything significant. So anyway, um, so error correction as a much more direct kind of feedback, there's just no evidence for it whatsoever in the oral kind, just none, none, absolutely none. Uh, written feedback is a different question. And then written feedback, um, the jury is out on that as well. There are, are pro, I mean, you can, there are good studies that show some kind of effect. There are good studies that show no kind of effect. The problem you have with error correction, both in writing and in oral for that matter, is you'd have to correct everything and communication would come to a halt. And so what you wind up doing is judiciously correcting for certain things. In the meantime, you don't correct for other things. Yet guess what? Those other things you don't correct for take care of themselves. So you're doing this, you're looking at your, your, your correcting A, but in the meantime, D, G, and F are cooking in the background and learners get that on their own without your correction. So it, it, it casts doubt on all that effort you might make to even correct A, for example. So I'll stop there. I'm talking too much. So. No, no, that's exactly kind of what I was thinking. Why and why is error correction such a big deal for language teachers? Do you have um, any ideas on that? Yeah, I do. And, and but I want to come back to something too in a minute. Um, if, my, if my mind doesn't wander, um, people language teaching always builds on stuff that preceded it, and it's hard to get rid of previous ideas. Um, we've never really had a revolution in language teaching, no matter what people say. Um, and so what happens is every wave of something comes along, people map it onto what was there before. So, and this is, I've said this to my friends in ACTFL, for example, one of the things that with the proficiency movement they failed to do was get people out of their textbooks and say, to develop proficiency, you don't need textbooks. In fact, you shouldn't have textbooks. But what they allowed to people to do, and there were authors, I could name them by name, but I won't, who actually tried to link proficiency to teaching out of textbooks, which was the wrong thing to do. Prior to that, we had, um, before proficiency, the, uh, before it was communicative language teaching, which also was saying at the beginning, you know, you don't need a textbook, that's not how languages are learned, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. But then people mapped the ideas of communicative language teaching on to textbooks and that's how we got our current present practice produce and assess kind of model um and all along while these movements are growing there were lingering effects of behaviorism and the old alm method and stuff like that where so deeply entrenched is the idea of bad habits that people believe that you develop bad habits if you're not corrected and so I think, that our, I think people's concern with errors and error correction is that lingering boogeyman. I'm gonna, I am going to call it a boogeyman from, um, 
from um, uh, behaviorism um, that just, it's just, it's just like a albatross around our neck. It's hard to are you talking, is it like fossilization? Is that what you're talk, referring to more or less? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that a fossilization was a term that came out of this in the early 70s. Larry Selinker first coined that term. Mm -hmm. Then it was, it was latched onto by some people in the proficiency movement who were mapping, again, old ideas onto proficiency like habit formation. If you don't correct, they learn bad habits and they fossilize mm -hmm. that, you know, that kind of stuff on the, which is just not true, of course. Um, but, um, so yeah. And, and fossilization was <laughs> Larry Sanko is a friend of mine. I like, so, but I, I told Larry one time, God, Larry, I wish we'd never have invented that word fossilization. That's just so awful. Well, <laughs> people still talk about it though. I mean, oh, you yeah. still hear it a lot. Um, at least I do sometimes. I'm like, but we have to correct these mistakes or they'll be fossilized. And I just think, well, okay, where's your proof on that? I mean, how, how do you know it's fossilized? They, I mean, maybe they just haven't gotten enough input yet to, you know. Well, what I, what I, and what you just said, Krista, reminds me of something I want to say. I think since we're talking a little about theory and this can translate into practice, it's that if you believe in error correction, if you believe in fossil, if you believe these things that we're just talking about, then my question to you is, what is your theory of language and what is your theory of acquisition, right? Because... If you believe those things, then that means that all the mainstream ideas we have about acquisition language, you just don't believe, you don't buy, even though that's the stuff that's empirically supported, right? And so I think what we have is a profession run amok in many ways because the best kept secrets in teacher education for language teachers are one, the nature of language, two, the nature of communication, and three, the nature of acquisition. And I find that odd. Uh, we produce not only K through 12, but it's worse at the, at the post-secondary level. We produce thousands of people who don't know what language is. They don't know what communication is. They don't know what acquisition is. And, and, and you know, they're taught to fly by the seat of their pants. They might get like this much, and those, your audience can't see this, but I'm putting my little fingers together. Like, you know, they get this much about acquisition in their course. Meanwhile, they spend two months on standards, right? Which is great. There's nothing wrong with talking about standards. But you can only interpret standards through a lens of your knowledge of language, your knowledge of communication, your knowledge of acquisition. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think that's part of the problem is that you always have to ask people, well, then how do you think languages are acquired? And you can't believe both in the role of input and then in the role of error correction. You can't believe in both. They, they, they theoretically, you have to show me then, if you leave in the role of input and you have to show me what you think is going on in the learner's head in terms of mechanisms, you have to show me what error correction, how it fits into that set of processes. And, it, and theoretically it can't, which is why we keep seeing the research we do that it yields so insignificant results, such insignificant results, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. Well, and when you're talking about that, about the error and, and even the um, recasting, what I've noticed a lot of times, and it's happened to me as a non-native, you know, of English, I'll say something and then somebody will go, no, it's that. And I'm like, what did I say? Because <laughs> it's come out of my mouth. I have no idea. Right. right. So <laughs> I think, well, that, that's not like a statement as to what comes out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> 
but or mine for that matter my god (laughs) but right we have the thoughts they come out and we go with it and then it's like no 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 you use the right the wrong word it's like what did i say right and then they're like you said that did i really we have no idea so we're doing that to our students or well i try not to but sometimes we don't have a choice um you know, we, we're having to do that. And the students are like completely confused. Like, I don't know why you're asking me that because I thought I was perfectly clear. So I think it also further proves the point that does nothing. Well, and I think too, it also raises the affective filter uh, in mm-hmm. the class. I had a student who came to me, she was really upset because she was actually in a conversation class. And she said, I can't get a sentence out without the, the, the professor jumping in and trying to correct my pronunciation or my grammar or something. She said, so by the time he finishes making me say that sentence, I've forgotten what my whole point was. <laughs> right. And then, and then that whole, the whole title of the course goes out the window, conversation. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, she, so she told me, she said, well, I'm just not going to, um, I'm not going to talk in that class. I found a friend in there who's a heritage speaker. And so we just sit in the back and we go out after class and have lunch and speak Spanish. And I thought, oh, but I mean, it good for her that she found a, a way yeah. to, to do it. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, I think error correction is kind of, yeah, it's, it's a waste of, it's a waste of time when I'm talking with people. I just go on with the conversation. And I think it's weird because we're, when we're in the, the language classroom, we think, oh, well, we've got to correct these errors. But if you're talking to someone outside of that, like at church or at the grocery store or something, and they make an error, you don't really think anything about it and you don't stop them and correct them. You just go on with the conversation because they communicated to you what they needed. And so I don't know why we can't get into that mentality in our language classroom as well and just, you know, go with it. But um, I guess it's like you were saying, people are, uh, are uh, just kind of set in their ways, I think. I think I'm reminded of the onset of the pandemic back in March when toilet paper flew off the shelves yes. and cleaning products and things just disappeared and you couldn't find toilet paper for months or you couldn't find bleach or whatever, you know. Um, and so people were analyzing this kind of behavior and psychologists were saying, well, this is a manifestation of people trying to take control of a situation they have no control over. It gives a sense of doing something even though it doesn't do anything, right? That having toilet paper in your house doesn't do anything with a pandemic, just, but it makes you feel better that you got toilet paper, right? Okay, and, and I think there are some things we do in language teaching that make us feel good like we're in control over something that in many respects we don't have control over. We have control over the quality and quality of input students get. We have control over the quality of that input. We have control over how engaging our classes are. We have control over the topics. We have control over those kinds of things. But there's one and only one person in charge of language acquisition, that's the learner. It's all going on in his or her head. And so, and I think it's infuriating to teachers to think that they can't control that somehow. Not infuriating, frustrating is probably the word. It's frustrating for some teachers. Why can't I control that? Why can't I control what's going on in their heads? Um, And so it's like the toilet paper flying off the shelves. Maybe we should call that the toilet paper syndrome. I don't know. It's, it's, if I don't do all this, um, I don't have control over the situation. Maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm making this up as I go right now. I'm thinking about it. 
Yeah, I often I often try to connect bigger picture things here about. Well, and I wonder but... too if maybe they don't feel like they're doing their job, maybe because um, I know Sandrine and I have talked about it. Um, you know, when we kind of we give them lots of input and we're kind of towards the end of a unit, and so the students are working together and they're communicating and they're doing, and we're just kind of walking around going, "Oh, I don't have anything to do. I don't feel like I'm doing my job," because the students are the ones who are you know, doing the work. And so I don't know, maybe they feel like, you know, it's part, it's their job to do it. I, I don't know. Yeah, but look at the job you did to set that up that students can do that in the classroom and, and you're walking by and doing your job of, hey, if you need me, I'm here. You know, so it's like, it's like teaching your kid to ride a bike. You know, you help a little bit, but at some point you let go and I'm here if you fall over. <laughs> but, yeah. That's but it. I'm not going to ride the bike for you, you know, so it's, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. And, and I think that what happens is Jim and I talked about this, Jim Lee and I, in our first edition of um, our book way back in 1995, Making Communicative Language Teaching Happen. We talked about the Atlas Complex. Yes, so I, mean, I have that book. I still, I still talk to my kids about that, my, my method yeah. students. Yeah. Um, and I think that teachers have a certain amount of that Atlas Complex that they're responsible, not just for teaching, but also for learning. Um, and forgetting that, um, and I'm going to switch from the term learning to the term acquisition, because I mean acquisition now, um, that they can't be responsible for acquisition. Again, only the learner can do that. And, and one of the best kept secrets from teachers is first language acquisition. Um, so let me just say this real quick. Um, parents are unconcerned about teaching kids language. It just kind of happens. And I know there are parents who go, oh, I taught my kid to read it. Yeah, we're not talking about that. You know, we're talking about your kid going from the one word stage, to the two word stage, you know, saying things like more milk, mine, you know, and um, um, do you can do these and things like that, that, that little kids say um, that have nothing to do with what you're doing. <laughs> um, but um, teachers think that students should all be at the same place at the same time right? That somehow they can control rate of development and so on. But if you look at child language acquisition, I can take a hundred, two and a half year olds, put them, put them in an auditorium, record them, and I could get at least 10 or 12 different stages of development among those 100 children. They're not, just because they're two and a half doesn't mean they're all at the same stage. Children have different rates of development with language. Um, some are faster, some are slower, some do some, I mean, and, and so those individual differences carry over into any kind of language acquisition situation. Um, and we're so concerned with trying to make everybody be the same and do the same, like, no, because the mind's not wired that way. So that, there's probably a lot of underlying things we're not thinking about when we talk about things like error correction and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and I know I'm dominating Sandrine. I'm sorry. I just have one more and then I'll let you ask your questions, but go for it. She's sitting, I mean, there. She's sitting there. So patient. I'm looking at her. She's so patient. I know. I tend to I'm used that. to it. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, Krista is the SLA expert in the two. I'm the lit major who okay. pulled in a lot of the SLA. So I'm not a complete, you know, novice in the thing. I know a good bit, but she's the expert on it. So I, I differ to the seniority and she's older from than me by four months so oh, stop yes Ooh, i'm her elder oh my god i know right i'm her elder so she it's like to- it's like twins i'm four minutes older than you <laughs> pay attention to me 
So, you know, you had mentioned feedback. And so, you know, Actual has come out with its core practices for effective language teaching. And one of them is providing effective feedback. So, um, you know, and I'm, I don't feel like sometimes I do, but um, give good feedback. So I think what Actual is talking about there more is perhaps um, like on formal assessments, you want to give them some good feedback. Um, that's more of, that's different than what you were talking about in terms of feedback, correct? Correct. Okay. I'm talking about interactional feedback. That, yes. that's, that's what the research in L2 acquisition is about. All right. So, so what about what Actful is saying about giving good feedback on these types of assessments? Um, you know, do you, does it make a difference for, for the learner as well, giving them some feedback on perhaps maybe you should do this when you're reading or perhaps this or giving them those kinds of strategies? I, I, I don't know. I think it really does depend on the feedback and what the purpose of it is. Um, so you can do formal assessments and provide feedback, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to make any difference. Again, I think it's people assuming they can have some kind of control. Um, so what does a learner do? I mean, it, again, it depends on the feedback. What can a learner do with feedback? Um, in terms of actual language acquisition and the development of communication, for that matter. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I just, what are you gonna, what are you gonna tell them? What, what is, I don't understand the purpose of the feedback in those situations. I, I don't, I really don't. Um, well, that's what I'm, I'm kind of looking at it right now. And so some of the examples and some of the things that, that I have seen is, you know, perhaps, um, you're re you need to rely more on cognates to help your comprehension of the written, you know, whatever, or perhaps if you don't know a word when you're speaking, you should try circumlocution or, you know, giving them those types of feedback or even, you know, I've seen somewhere it says, well, you're really struggling with um, your verb endings or something like that. And so, I mean, I just, that's, that's what I've gathered that, that they're talking about um, in terms I, of, you know. I think it's like most feedback that you give to learners. It just goes out the window. I really do. I think it, most of it just goes out the window. And, and there's underlying assumptions in there too. I mean, just with the examples you gave and not to pick on those examples, but like there's an assumption about cognates there and making use of cognates that may not be there. I've done research, uh, anecdotal research. It's not published research. I pulled students into my, my office and I had them read something and there'll be five cognates in a sentence. And they're very obvious cognates and they have no idea what the damn words mean. Yes. And you go, okay, so the assumption of them relying on cognates and you tell them that's like, well, you're making a big assumption there of telling them that. Um, Cause things that look like a cognate to you may not look like a cognate to a learner. Right. Um, and in oral language, it's even worse. I mean, like, you know, there are, I mean, there are just, you can say certain things and if they can't recognize it on the page, how the hell are they going to recognize when they hear it? Mm -hmm. um, so, and then things like circumlocution, tell people to do, I mean, circumlocution, I think, um, what, what is, what is, what I think is interesting is people give feedback about what make really good language learners 
to people who aren't the good language learners as though somehow they're going to be the good language learners. Mm. Um, and they're used to, and back, you, this is before y'all's time back in the seventies, there was a slate of things published, even a couple of books, I think on what the good language learner can tell us. Well, in the end, the good language learner can tell us nothing because I can't, the good language, whatever the good language learner is, we can't take that and take a poor language learner and make them a good language learner, knowing what we know from the good language. We just can't. And people tried doing that. And it just, that's why all that research disappeared. I mean, most people don't even know that research exists because they didn't go anywhere um, or that discussion didn't go anywhere. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think we have to be careful about the assumptions we're making in terms of the feedback we give. What, what feedback are we giving to whom for what purpose and so on? Um, so. Mm -hmm. So then if we're, you know, the whole, the idea of error correction and the different feedback, I mean, so what do we as language teachers need to do to make sure our students are, you know, acquiring language? Say that question again, because I was thinking about teacher uh, feedback I've given to teachers about teaching and I was going to make an analogy, but I'll come back to that. Well, you can so, go ahead. Go ahead. Make no, your analogy. When, when we were working on our program at Michigan State, uh, one of the things I learned over the years, and, and when I was working with my assistants, I said, we completely threw out the old observation forms they used to use on going into classrooms because we were developing, you know, comprehension-based, input-driven, interactional classrooms, you know, no reliance on textbook, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. And so we had to develop a whole different kinds of observation things, and they weren't used for any purpose other than to sit down and talk to teachers about how they were doing. Um, they didn't go into their files. They kept a copy. We kept a copy, but they didn't go into their personnel files or anything like that. Uh, we had an end of semester thing where we had to say, yeah, person's professional, not professional. You know, we had to do those little category things just so they, for their contract renewal, right? Yeah, they're mm -hmm. decent people and they're behaving and that kind of stuff. But, but for their classroom stuff, one of the things I talked to my assistants about is never give a teacher more than two things to work on. Mm-hmm. No matter how awful the class is, no matter how good the class is, how I many I've never given them more than two things to work on, and they better be really, really concrete things um, that they really can, and, and that they can observe in other teachers if they go see, um, and because otherwise they're going to they're going to get lost in the morass of feedback, and and try to pick the, the a piece of feedback that's going to maximize any improvement they're going to have over time. Mm -hmm. And you kind of fly by the seat of your pants. You learn how to do this when you're, when you're working with teachers. Um, and, um, and I told them, and if you pick the right ones and if you give them good feedback, some of the other stuff you're seeing will start to go away, right? Because it, it, it'll develop on its own and or this other stuff will drag with it. So my point again is that, it, is that you have to be really careful how you pick feedback and what the purpose of it is and understanding what people do with feedback as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's too many assumptions about feedback, feedback that people aren't asking. Mm, so. that, that could be. But anyway, what was your question about? Um, yeah, something. What was it? What was my question? <laughs> play, back, play back the tape. Play back the recording. No, I think it, it was. Passed. Let's see. What was it? Okay. So, yes. So, basically, we're trying to talk. We want to talk now about input because you know, error correction, we know is not all of all that effective in terms of acquisition. Um, and we do know from research, though, that the input really is one of the, the is the key factor, is it not for language acquisition. So we were wanting to talk a little bit about that. Sandrine, didn't you have something you wanted to ask? Uh, I had something but actually, 
wasn't ready to move away from the from the air. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Well, go ahead then. Sorry. It's okay. I thought you were, I was done. See, so. Gene, I was ready to say something about Krista's comment about uh, input. I, I want to say that input is the key external factor. Ah, there you go. The key external factor. All right. Well, we'll keep, I'll write that down and then we can come back to it. We'll come back, <laughs> come to, back to it. Yeah, no, <laughs> it isn't much, but it kind of blew my mind and I've probably listened to it, but I was, um, doing late homework and um, going back and listen to previous shows you've had. And I was, um, I fell on the tea with BVP, the episode that you're talking about that and said that when we push students beyond their comfort level or have them do tasks beyond their capacity, that's when they do things that we see as errors. And I, I, I actually wrote it down and I was like, hmm, I see that. I, I can definitely see that. Then I started thinking, I thought, well, but we're trying to push them, right? That's kind of the I plus one kind of thing at the same time. If we don't push them, they remain a little bit stagnant. So how do we reconcile the two? Or do we reconcile the two? Or do we just have them do tasks that mirror, you know, obviously the real life tasks and that type of thing and just not worry about what's coming through as errors or mistakes? Um, there's a lot in that question, I think. So let me, let me, let me, <laughs> let me just ruminate. I'm, I'm the literary um, one. Did I mention that? Yeah. 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 And, and I just um, taught a poetry class today. So yeah, you're welcome. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mon dieu. Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> So uh, what was that? I was thinking uh, a little about the, no, this whole idea of pushing people is, doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and I know I, I, I hear this from people who work in teacher education all the time, that if they're, they're intermediate mid stage, you got to give them things at the advanced stage. I go, no, you give people stuff that's interesting and engaging and things will progress naturally. I mean, you, everybody's, again, it's that idea of got to, I've got to structure and teach things a certain way to have a semblance of control. It, control is an illusion when it comes to language acquisition. It's an absolute illusion. And again, the best kept secret from teachers is they should take a course on child first language acquisition so they can understand why these things are playing out in second language acquisition as well. Nobody says when a child's at the two-word stage, oh, I got to speak in the three-word stage or push them to be the three-word stage. That doesn't happen, you know, or they're at the stage where um, they don't have auxiliaries. So I got to push them so they have auxiliaries. No, I mean, we just don't do that. Um, and, and the complexity of language unfolds over time. So do the interactions that children engage in. It should be the reverse. It should be the reverse. We shouldn't be pushing. Learners should be pushing us. In the sense when learners give us signals and what they're doing that they can handle more, then we give them more. Hmm. Not we give them more because we want to push them to the next level. It's right. the other way around. It's like, oh, look what they're doing now with language. Yeah, maybe I can do some other stuff now, you know. So, um, and then also level means different things, right? So, for example, if I'm teaching a Spanish one class or a first semester class, don't only give them sentence level things to read because 
they're at the one word stage, they can barely produce sentences. So I should only give them sentence level stuff to work at because that's pushing them to the next stage. No, that's ridiculous. I'm going to give them what I can give them that's comprehensible. It might be four, five, six, ten sentences together. Um, as long as it's comprehensible and engaging, something's going on in their heads. So I don't, I don't, I never worry in my own teaching about level. I worry about comprehensibility and I worry about being engaging and compelling, doing something that makes them um, interact with the languages deeply. And I, I mean, emotionally deeply or in, in, with interest, not deep in the sense of processing deeply, although mm -hmm. that probably happens on its own, but in the sense that they're invested in it somehow because it's interesting to them. Yeah. That's why I teach at the college level. That's why I pick the kinds of topics for my tasks and things. So I pick things like I know that they're going to be interested in like, you know, because I know that population group. And, and you know, most of the time, 95% of the time I'm on target. Or 5% of the time, man, that didn't work. I'm not going to use that one again. Yeah. You know, that topic or that task or whatever. Um, but yeah. And so, so it's, it's all about, it's all about being comprehensible, being engaging, being compelling, and the rest will take care of itself. And I think what you were saying about the, the kids, you know, oh, well, they're only saying two words. So now I can speak in three words. That reminds me of, of what you had said at a presentation one time about the past tense, Like you had gone through and added up the amount of hours that like a Spanish kid would hear the past tense. And yet even at, you know, after five years, they're still making errors in the past tense, you know? So why do we expect after we've taught a unit on, you know, preterite and imperfect, why haven't they mastered it? And I think you know, that that is a really tough realization so many times because, well, we have taught it, therefore they should have it. But right. that's not, that's not the reality of acquisition. And that was something that, that really struck me when I thought about it, all those hours that they're hearing the language and they still haven't grasped the predator and the imperfect completely. I was like, wow. You know, we, and to be honest with you in L2 research, we don't have a good idea on how some of that kind of stuff is acquired. What drives what, what drives like verb endings and noun endings and things like that. What drives those things in acquisition? We, we've got a better handle on syntax um, and even phonology to that, to a certain extent. But morphology is one of those, it's one of those parts of language that's between, it, it's a formal part of language, but it's somewhere between syntax and lexicon, for example. Um, and there are different theories about where morphology resides and how it interacts with language and so on. And for those of your listeners who don't know what morphology means, if they're listening, morphology is basically the study of the shapes of words. So words have, you know, it can have a root, they can have a prefix, they can have an ending, a suffix. That, so that's the morphology of words, right? So how morphology of words develops uh, in learners' heads over time is, is not as well understood as we think it is or would like it to be, in my mind. Um, and I, I tie it into the lexicon, I think, more than, than the average person does. But, so. You know, what frustrates me with those errors and mistakes and whatever that um, people tend to focus on is, I mean, I'm French. I have cousins who are much younger who are French. I see how they write on Facebook. I know how kids my age back then wrote in French. And it's like all the mistakes our learners are making 
their language is sometimes better, their grammar is better than that of the native speakers who are going through the, through the school system. So I keep wanting to shake my colleagues and go, let them make mistakes. You know, why are you expecting them to understand passé composé and the agreements uh, with when the direct object is in front of it and standing on its head and looking south and then you have the S, but if it's looking north, then no, you don't have it, like, right? <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. I mean, French people struggle with it. Anytime I talk to my mom and I bring up and I'll talk about it and she goes, oh my gosh, why do your colleagues want, your, want students to know subjunctives so bad? We avoid it. <laughs> And I said that to one of my colleagues one day, and she went, no, they need to know subjunctive. I'm like, a French person just told you that you didn't need it. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't it tied in a way to the whole thing of the grades? That's kind of as we were talking, looking at the mistakes, looking at that, because why do we evaluate? It's for the grade, right? That's when we pick apart those mistakes. And when I say we, I say that as a, as a general group, right? So... Right. How do we get I talked about that? this on Friday. I gave a uh, plenary session on Friday for the SOLFE, the Symposium on Language Programs in Higher Education um, that was hosted by the University of uh, Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I think they're going to make the, um, some of their recordings public soon, so be on the lookout for that. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's SOLFE, S-O-L-P-H-E 2020. Um, and so I talked about this. I, I, my, the title of my plenary was Barriers to Innovation in language teaching. And one of, one of the barriers, I talked about five, knowledge. Um, I talked about um, personnel. I talked about power. I talked about time, that is teacher time. Um, and then I talked about institutionalized education. And when I talked about institutionalized education, I hit, so I dreamed that's, that's one of the first things I talked about is that the system of grading, we have a one size fits all in institutionalized education. So the way we, the way we assign grades, you know, with the A, B, C, D, or a, in Michigan State, it was a 40, 3.5, 3.0, 2.5, whatever. Um, whether you have a numerical system or you have a letter system or whatever you have, um, you got to do the same thing in language that you do in chemistry, that you do in history, you gotta, that you do in dance. I don't know how they assign grades in dance, but they do. So the idea is that there are parts of institutionalized education that make it really difficult for languages to innovate and to get out of the box. Um, and so you fall back on ways in which you can assign A, B, C, D, right? Um, or 3.5 or 4.0 or whatever, you know? It's just, you do that. Um, and then that's what motivates students and you got a vicious cycle going on. So true innovation in language teaching would get rid of grades. But that's See, a whole nother, I, that's a whole other question. It really is. And I had said we were talking about a language, you know, like the core curriculum requirement at our university. And I was like, I don't know why everybody thinks that two semesters or two years, I don't know where that number came from, you know, but I said, well, why don't we set a proficiency level? And, you know, if a student can meet that proficiency level, um, when they come out of high school, then they don't need to take any language. Or maybe this student only needs to take two classes and they can reach this proficiency level. Maybe this kid will need five before they can reach the proficiency level. And they all thought I was insane. And they're like, that would be impossible tomorrow. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> but, you know, they all thought I was crazy. So 
yeah, it it's it's definitely that mindset with the grades. That's true. It could definitely be part of it. It, it I mean, it, look it, at where I am with that. It is. It is. And when you talk about what would you what you say earlier, Chris, about people say oh, I spend so much time grading. Yeah. And it's because look at it, grading, grading, grading. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day on we we zoom once a week and he's talking about I got all this grading to do. And I go, not me. My last 15 years of teaching were wonderful. I had minimized grading because it I realized I really I looked at it. I looked at what that was doing at Michigan State. I don't know if you Walter Hopkins and, and Dan Trago and I published a study in flannels. I don't know if you all read this. But we took, we got rid of tests and we put them online. And we compared one semester where everybody took tests and one semester where they did the tests online as homework. Mm -hmm. And we found, guess what? That the, the mean score, and there were like 250 people in the first semester and 250 people in the next semester where we compared them. The means were exactly the same as standard deviations. There was no difference in how they were performing. So we said, that's it. Tests are out the window. Threw the tests out the window, left them online. I put um, can-do statements in their place. And the can-do statements were basically three, two, one, or no, two, one, zero. Zero basically meant you weren't there or you couldn't do it. But, um, and so, it, you know, there's ways to look at things and do things differently, but um, I don't know. It, it just, to me, I think we're so hung up on breaking grades down and justifying them to people, uh, to the student and to administrators and sometimes to parents. Um, Anyway. No, I, I read that study, as a matter of fact, so when I redesigned our program, all of their, all of their quizzes or tests or whatever, they're all online. Yeah, because I didn't want to spend time in class when we could be doing so many other more meaningful things. So yeah, so we, we all my kids, their, their stuff is online. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it just frees up more class time to do what you want class to do. So Exactly. Yeah, I mean, apparently I have been expected to have my students write a composition, not only in class, but spend another class period as a preparation for them to do a composition. And I looked at it and I was like, that is a waste of my time. They can write at home. Well, one other thing I, I worked on the last 15 years, I, I started this. When did I start this? Because it's 2020. It would have been 2005, 2006, something like that. Yeah. Um, I started group writing. I said, this idea of everybody writing alone, and this is, this is, a, this is again, a relic of institutionalized mm -hmm. education. And it, it dawned on me that at that point, 50% of my publications were co-authored or multiple authored. 50% were by myself. So if I'm co-writing with people, why are my students not learning how to co-write with people? And aren't two or three or four heads better than one? And so I started instituting group writing and I, I, I hit on the number four, that four students in a group. And I did this at the graduate level and the undergraduate level. Right. And it revolutionized for me how I thought about compositions and writing in the classroom too. Um, so that uh, I got better compositions. Students were interacting in ways that were um, unprecedented, I'd never seen before. Um, and I just got, and I, and I would walk around in the, to the groups and I would just, they would go, look, here's what we've written so far. And I would just say something like, I don't like your first sentence. It's not interesting. I'm bored already. <laughs> and I'd walk away and then they'd be like, what? And then, I, then they'd be like rewriting their first sentence. They call me back and say, how about this? I go, well, that's a little better. Yeah. I might read more now. Yeah. See if you can jazz it up even more, you know, and that's all the kind of feedback I would give to them, you know, about, cause writing is about communicating and engaging people. Right. Um, not, 
practicing language. And so um, what was interesting <laughs> when I, I um, the last class I, class I taught at Michigan State was a conversation class. I incorporated writing in there like that. Um, and students told me, they put this on my evaluation. Most of them said, I learned more about writing in this class than I did my composition class. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned to speak some Spanish, too. So um, anyway, so yeah. So there's all kinds of things we can rethink and do because we're just stuck in a mold of institutionalized education where we think this is the way it's been done, and it's hard to think outside the box sometimes. Um, so most dangerous words we've always done it that way <clears throat> yep yep all right well krista you were moving it to the input yeah that was like half an hour ago but <laughs> uh, that's all right so you forgot no <laughs> well no he was saying input is the key external factor uh -huh. so um for language acquisition so i mean i just wanted to talk a little bit about input and what it kind of looks like in the classroom what you know, what kinds of things our teachers need to be doing in the classroom, because we try to, you know, like we said, bridge the theory and the practice. I think sometimes teachers, they don't read the research articles. They think, well, that doesn't apply to me. They're just trying so hard to figure out what activity they can do in class, and they haven't taken the time, you know, to look at the research because they're so pressed and right now with the pandemic i mean i these teachers my heart just goes out to them i see oh, some, gosh, yeah. these k-12 teachers and they're yeah. just rounding so of course they're not going to have time to do a whole lot of other things but so what does an input rich classroom look like for you it, it you know it depends i've i can tell you what mine looked like um mm -hmm. and i can and but it might be different from what somebody else's is because you know that saying, all roads lead to Rome? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if you turn that on its head, not turn on its head, but you can say it a different way, which is there are multiple roads to get to Rome, right? So there are multiple routes in acquisition that are input dependent. There's no one method or no one way to do things. Um, and so in my classes, what I do is I like to develop input-based tasks um, that I think are interesting. And then I work backwards from those and design my classes. And so um, the and this is what I do in my workshops for teachers, for example, I show that I ask them, you know, can you do if, if, if you're, you know, I'll get people who don't speak Spanish uh, and, I'll, and I'll get them up in front of my students. And I'll say, and I'll show them this task. Can you do this task? And they go, no. I go, you'll be, you'll be able to do it by the end of the hour. And I, and I, I and I show how I start off very simple by I've taken that task and broken it down into component parts and through lots of interaction and, and visuals and context and, and things show them how you build up all this stuff over time um, through you know, 50 minutes and you get to that last 10 minutes of class. Oh, you should be able to do this task now and you turn them loose on the task and they can do it. And what's interesting, I did this presentation one time um, and there were like 50 something people in the audience and I could only have like 10 or 12 students up front, right? So there are a lot of people in the audience who didn't know any Spanish. And what they were surprised at was they said, we weren't even in your class participating. By the end, we could do the task too. <laughs> That's cool. And I said, yeah, because it was engaging, was interesting. You were, you were like following it and there was a lot of support. Um, if you didn't understand, I'd backtrack and make sure you did understand. Not a grammar point or vocabulary, point, but understand what I was trying to say. And also a lot of varieties of doing something. So... Um, so the, the, that task I demonstrated, so you know, Krista and Sandrine was 
Um, when I used to teach early on, and many years ago, I would ask students to fill out cards about themselves. What's your name? What's your major? What's your phone number in case I need to call you? What class are you taking this semester? Yada, yada. You know, we used, we want, used to want to get to know our students. And I would take those cards home at night, and I would, like, study the card and say, okay, so Sandrine is a French major, and she's got five classes this semester, and yada, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So, um, so what I decided one day was, wait a minute. Why are my students doing this for me? Why don't I teach them how to do that? And so I made that a long-term goal, like the end of a week, beginning of the following week, and I broke up into smaller tasks. And so the task the first day was, at the end of this class period, you'll be able to find out somebody's name and report that name to the class uh, and tell me where that person's from. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot mm -hmm. to be able to, to do comfortably at the end of 50 minutes. And, um, and so uh, it was, it was you know, you, and then you show them how you get there and then you turn them loose doing that. And they've got a little chart they have to fill in um, with, for three, they have to find three people at the end of the class. There's three people at the interview. And then the, the task is you find this information and then you come back. And so I call on Krista and I say, Krista, okay, who did you talk to? And then she says, Sadrine. And I say, show us Sadrine. And then she, you know, Sandrine. And then, uh, and then I say, tell us something you know about Sandrine. And, she, and then she says, where you're from, for example, or whatever it is that, that I had. I, usually it's where you're from, what's your name, where you're from. I think that's pretty much it. Is there anything else? Um, and oh, also where you live, like in, on, in town, mm -hmm. right? So you live in this part of town, that part of town. Um, so, um, and everybody was able to, you know, to do that in the class and present, you know, present someone. Um, and the whole, because the whole idea is at the beginning of class, so you want to build community. So I, I stuck, I, I fell upon that task and that wouldn't work in K through 12 because all the kids know each other already, right? They've been going <laughs> to school together. But in a college class, in a Spanish one class, these, there might be two people know each other and the rest are all strangers, right? So you need community building activities where people get to know each other early on, what their names and who they are and where they're from, blah, blah, blah. Then you start to find connections and you can build on that the next day. And then, so every day after that, for example, I took a little, little piece of that final task and built it back in and take the previous task and build it in as well so that, so that I took... So what would happen is you'd have the final task at the end, you had a little bitty task at the beginning, but each day I take that first task and build something more onto it, build something more onto it, so that at the end, they were basically doing the task that I wanted them to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, so you, and you have to recycle stuff into, obviously. So. Um, and so, um, so imagine what that class is like that first day with the first thing that they have to do is learn how to say names, right? That's the first thing I have to say names. So I always start off with, actors, actresses, and politicians. And, and it's, it's almost like a game where they don't know what I'm doing, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna show them that they know more actors and actresses names than they know politicians' names. <laughs> and that's, that's the point of doing that. And so uh, we start off by saying, you know, in English real quick, on a, a score of, you know, one to five, how good are you knowing actors? Ah, four. How about politicians? Oh, yeah, I know a lot of politicians, four. Then we go through with all that activity. We start off with, I'll put up a picture of Matt Damon, right? And I'll ask in Spanish, what's his name? And they all shout out, Matt Damon, good. Next one is, you know, Will Smith, what's his name? You know, and so they keep hearing, what's his name? What's his name? What's his name? What's his name? Mm -hmm. Right? And, and all this, they're just shouting out answers. And then we get to the actresses, they do that. And they get to the politicians, they get the first one right. And then I put the second one, they go, oh. Uh, uh. And so, and these are people, these are people they should know, right? Anyway, so then, and then so that, that takes me about eight minutes to get through all that. Um, and they hear, you know, como se llama about 
gazillion, 100 times. Then I switch and um, I do something with um, como te llamas, you know? So now you know how to talk about somebody else. So now we're going to, now I have an act, it's a built-in activity where we're working on hearing constantly over and over again, como te llamas, what's your name, what's your name, what's your name, what's your name? Literally, what do you call yourself, right? Um, and so, um, and then, and so we, so we do that and then, and then we combine the two and we do different things and so on. Um, and this, and then we move to, um, uh, in that cycle, for example, I moved to, um, again, relying on certain cognates because I, as a linguist, I know which cognates work and which ones don't and also through experience, <laughs> right? Um, and so I put up a map of the world and I, I talk about the continentes. And I say, Asia es un continente. Africa es un continente. America del Norte es un continente. And they're all like, oh my God, I'm understanding all this. They're like, they're not behind, they're not following, you know, they're, they're understanding this. And so then I start talking about, um, I'll say, um, awesome. name a famous person who's from the continent of Asia. Then we zero in. Let's look at a country, país. And I say, Japón es un país. China es un país. India es un país. And they go, oh, país means country, right? So, so we go like that and I go, so name, name a famous person from China. Blah, blah, blah. And so we start doing this and then what they're hearing over and over again is where someone's from, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, so I'll start show, I start throwing famous names out. After we do a bunch of those, I start throwing, I'll say a famous name and they'll go, oh, Esme, blah, 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 they shout it out, right? Mm-hmm. I go, okay, great. Um, so now we got that done. Then I move into the, de donde eres stage, where are you from? And then we start doing activities with that. So the, the point is, is I get to the end of the class, they've got all the tools needed to do that, that, um, that task. And they've learned it all through interaction and input mm-hmm. and with a lot of comprehensive, a lot of, a lot of stuff that helps them understand, right? Um, and, and so that's the beginning stage, right? And then you just build on things. Um, that's, some people won't think that's very interesting, but to a college kid in the first hour, it's interesting because they know they're gonna learn about each other and that's, that's okay, that's what they're there for. Um, but then, then as things progress, I should have turned my fan on. It's really hot in my office here. I'm going to go I for it. I'm going to turn my fan on and I think my cord will reach while I do this. Um, maybe not. We'll see. Um, ah, hold on. Hang on. There's a famous Bette Midler song where she's doing a Las Vegas show and she's the oldest living showgirl in Las Vegas. And she sings a song called, boy, it's hot in here. And that's how it feels right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that might, you know, so we might have a task um, in a couple of weeks that's tied to a reading. Um, and I, I write, I write flash fiction for my students. So they have something interesting to read. This is how I developed Cuentos Cortos, by the way, for those of you out there listening. Um, But um, uh, the flash fiction is always supposed to be interesting, you know, less than 400 words and as comprehensible as possible. And I think that's not comprehensible, just gloss for them, right? Um, and then at the end of the reading, there's ways we go through the reading, which I don't need to go through, but, um, then we always have a task after that. And I use the task as a way to build up prior to the reading. Um, 
and build some things in prior to doing the reading so they can better comprehend the reading. Then afterwards, we do the task. And the task is always a very simple task. That one, for example, which is about a secret, a guy who says he has a secret, but he won't reveal the secret. Um, the task is about, can you keep a secret? And so there's a lot of repetitive language in the, in the little survey they have to answer by keeping secrets or being gossipy and so on. Um, and then we, what we find out is that that people lie on surveys. <laughs> that the point of the task is that you people lie on surveys. Look, you said you can keep secrets, but the last question in the secret is, I'm dying to know what the secret of the character is. And they all go, yes. They put a they circle five. They're dying because he never reveals the secret in the story. Oh, how so, that would now that would annoy me. I'm sorry, that I would get annoyed. So the point of the task afterwards is to tell us tell students, see how you lie on the survey? You you can't keep it. You you just you know, um, and so think that that that's those are how my classes are structured. I always with tasks and I work backwards and figure out how to get somewhere from what I want where I want to be. Mm-hmm. Try to work in chunks of a week or two. Yeah, and so. so you, I take it, you guys did not use textbooks. Um, I don't, but I ha- in my language program I did. But here's how I use the textbook. The textbook students get to do stuff outside of class, but the textbook I had had certain tasks, and I would pull those tasks out, and they were the TAs were trained to build around that. So the students thought that they were learning something the textbook outside of class, and, and that's fine, you know, and that they did their homework in that way, and that satisfied the people who said, "Oh, I'm learning something." Else. And then classroom was for this interactional kind of stuff. So they really they got good with certain things, right? Um, and uh, so they had their explicit knowledge of whatever they were doing outside of class. And then, but they also had online work that would prepare them for in-class. So we did, wrote a lot of that stuff our own. We did it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and that's the thing. I think sometimes we, we do have the student expectation. They, they fully expect a textbook. And so many of my students will be like, when are we going to do the grammar? Where is my verb chart? You know, because that's kind of the expectation that they have. And so we have to, I mean, we, Sandrine and I have a proficiency unit. We talk about proficiency and what it really is and the different levels and the role that grammar plays. And I think that that's made a big difference for our students because so many of them have this preconceived idea of what a language class is supposed to be. And then when you're not up there going, yo hablo, tu hablas, you know, they, they kind of like, I don't know what to do with all of this. So I think it's, yeah, it's important to, to, you know, teach the students that, but yeah, I, I would ditch the textbook if it were just up to me, but. Oh, it's hard. I would take anything but a textbook, especially the one I currently have. That's <laughs> 11 years old. I mean, you know, my textbook, I was um, looking at it. It's trying, it's trying really, really hard to put things in context, but I was actually reading that to my daughter the other day and she died laughing because it was talking about cell phones and how, that person wished to get a Blackberry or a Palm so they could have internet all the time. (laughs) Wow. And I thought, oh my God, I don't even know that my students know what a Blackberry or a Palm is. Right. Um, Yeah, that's, that's how, and I, that poor thing is just all over the place. So I had tried to go by more of themes more than anything else. And um, let's say that it did not work well because of student expectations <laughs> and, and other things outside of that. But um, 
Yeah. So I know we've covered and I'm just going to go ahead and ask it and blast me for it. Go for it. I don't care. How do you feel about choral repetition and all of the substitution and what else are they called? Transformation and mechanical drills. Yeah. Yeah. What's your thought on that? What's their point? Do they achieve anything? No, they don't. They don't. Um, Again, um, if you have a theory of language and you have a theory of communication and you have a theory of acquisition and these theories, the ones that I work with are, are empirically driven. They're not just stuff that people make up. Um, then you can look at those things and, and just say automatically why they don't work, why they, why they go nowhere. And um, they, and, 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 you know, and there are even different theories within our theories. Um, that don't agree with each other on, for example, the nature of language, but they all agree that that kind of stuff is a waste of time. Um, I can think of four theories off the top of my head that are prevalent in second language research right now that all go, eh, why are you doing that? Even though we don't agree on what language is, for example, right? right. Um, but we know that those things, whatever our four different approaches to language is in these four theories, they would look at those things and go, they, they, don't, they don't do what, they don't feed acquisition anyway. So, um, yeah, so all those things are just, again, those are remnants. It's, it's hard to get rid of when you when you move, when paradigms shift, they never, like I said before, they never really shift. There's never really a revolution in language teaching. You always carry stuff from before and you add a little bit on that's new. And I always call it old wine and new bottles. We try to teach the same old thing, but we think we're doing it a different way now, but we're still teaching the same old thing. Mm-hmm. True innovation would say, no, we're not teaching the same old thing. We're getting rid of the old thing. Um, And that is, and it starts with people understanding that language is not what's in textbooks. And I'm not talking about, oh, that's not the way they say it in France. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a rule in a textbook is psychologically not real. It's just not, it's just not what's in our heads. So that's from that. Yeah. That's actually one of your points in your, while we're on the topic book. Yep. And I would love to do, I want to do a book club, you know, with that book for like my faculty at my university and maybe even teachers in Alabama when things settle down after the pandemic, because I think it's an eye-opening book when you think about what language really is. And, and I think that's a, that's a key if we want to innovate and we want to change, we have to think about those things. Well, let me put a plug, let me put a plug in for this one. I did a, a follow-up book uh, for ACFL that got published this last November, uh, right before the convention. And it was called The Nature of Language. And it's a short little book like, oh, yes. short little book like, um, like uh, well, we're on the topic and it's meant for teachers, mm-hmm. um, non-linguists, non-experts. And it's, it, really breaks it down for you and shows you why mm-hmm. language is not what we think it is. Um, and I think it's important for people to understand that because if they, if we can't get people understanding what language is, um, and again, there are people out there who disagree with the theory of language I work with. It's the most prevalent theory, but still, I, I get it. They, they can do their own book on the nature language and they're still going to come to the same conclusion that you can't teach language the way we teach language. Um, the conclusions will be the same. So, but, but my point of writing that book was to encourage dialogue among people and say, hey, 
what are we really doing? If this thing here, uh, Sandrine might like this, but in one chapter, I talk about these four different rules for agreement in French. Students are taught four different rules for how to make agreement work in French. And it has one underlying principle in language that unifies them all. There's no four different rules in a French speaker's mind or second language learners of mind, assuming they get that agreement over the time, right? There's something much more abstract going on in language that can't be captured by those four textbook rules on agreement. So um, that's one example I give. So you you made the analogy too, as as you two were talking, that just kind of like blasted back in my mind that um, grammar is like looking at the universe on a 2D map that we're looking at it or even on a flat map and it looks that way. But if you were to go into space, it looks completely different. Right. I was talking about constellations that constellations, like textbook yeah. rules and the way people think about language is like looking at constellations. You know, we can see Orion, we can see Scorpio, we can see the Big Dipper, right? And that's our perception. We project onto the sky what we think we see because in our perception, it's a two-dimensional flat sky, right? You can take mm -hmm. a piece of black cardboard paper or, car or whatever you call that and punch holes in it and make the Big Dipper, hold it up to a light and there's the Big Dipper. Or I can make Orion and hold it up and there's, there's Orion, right? But if you get in a spaceship and you fly out in the space, the speed of light and you go out there, you know, and you're hundred light years away, guess what, Orion doesn't look like that. Um, it's an illusion from Earth. There's no Orion out there in space. It's, it's an illusion. We've, we've projected that onto something that's not really there. And that's, that's the way we view language as lay people and as teachers. We think we're projecting onto language what's and it's what we see in textbooks is not there it's, it's like the two-dimensional space right and so to me textbook rules are like constellations because language is too complex and abstract to talk about in simple terms so um and so we think we're giving them rules but we're not i mean we are giving them rules but they're not rules that can do anything because they're not the rules that wind up in your head First of all, there are no rules in your head. That's another story. I mean, we could go on this. There could be a whole show about language if you wanted to, but anyway. I know, right? Oh. Right? So anyway, yeah. Absolutely. And second language learners, with the big, one of the biggest kept secrets is second language learners, um, as they progress, even from the beginning, they're developing an abstract, complex system that teachers don't see because they're not looking for it, right? But researchers, we see it. Mm -hmm. And um, if any advanced speaker of a language um, has, is an, their abstract complex system is increasingly approaching that of something native-like, right? And, and it's just, it's not at all what's in textbooks. It amazes <laughs> me, but, but it's hard to tell people that, so. Yeah, and I think some, I mean, I personally think sometimes teachers want the textbook because they're not, um, they don't feel like they can actually create what, their students need and they they've got this kind of safety net if you will of of activities and i think sometimes that i mean i know like in in our um at teacher ed program i mean i get one methods course with them and um it was insane because i was supposed to teach them all of the sla and you know all the standards and i mean it I, there was no way to do it all in 16 weeks. And so I talked with the coordinator of secondary and we did manage to add the ESL program has a second language acquisition theory course. And I said, Oh, this is fabulous. So we did add that. So I got to take that out of the methods course, but you know, sometimes there's just not enough time, I think to, 
teach the, them all of the things that they need to be able to do and give them all of those tools. So the textbook is kind of their safety, you know, net for a lot of teachers, I think. Absolutely. I wrote about this in 2015, that what we tend to do is create, we don't create, and I, I'll use instructor because I'm talking about all levels, K through university, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We don't teach and educate people to be language teachers. We teach and educate people to be textbook users. Yeah. Oh, yes. That kind of, um, you know, and, and, and that's what we do. Um, and that's, that's got to change. And I don't know how to make that change. That's so. Well, I was hoping you were going to give us a solution. I was going to be about to say, and where do we go from there? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I guess that's why we do podcasts, right? So that we can kind of get there and try to stimulate the conversation. Yeah. Mm Yeah, and that book you mentioned, I actually, um, last year, I did not make it to actual, unfortunately. And so I begged Krista and I said, please buy the book for me. I'll see you at some other time after that. I don't know, because we are in two different states. But I was like, no, that was actually, I was still in the same state. And I said, and I will pay you back. Just please buy it for me. And she did, and I read it. And as part of that proficiency activity we do, then I followed up with some regular questions to my students throughout to get them to talk. Some we do in class, some we do out of class because time is limited. And I've pulled some of those questions that you have over there in the back to get them to think about what is language. And I'm like, okay, I'm not that smart. I'm not the one who came up with them, but that, that guy is really smart and he thought about it and he's got the research. So let's talk about it. So no, that's a, great book and i highly recommend it to anyone to kind of think and well thank you that's nice of you to say thank you seriously yeah yeah no 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 i just love that and that blew my mind and gave me a big aha moment (laughs) what a good segue that was sandrine i'm sorry was it that smooth all right so So I have mine, Krista, I imagine you have yours, and Bill, if you want to jump in and do one, you, you more certainly can, but we're not going to put you on the spot for that one. Um, so Krista, do you want to go first or you want me to? You can go ahead. Okay. All right. So I've had this one for a little bit, and I was listening to Big Shocker, a podcast. <laughs> And there she goes, shakes her head. Every one of her aha moments starts with, I was listening to a podcast. It does. I listen to so many different ones. But that one is the Class Cast Podcast. And don't ask me to repeat that because I won't. That is too big of a tongue twister for me. But um, they were talking with someone about standardized testing and people who are doing some teachers who are doing, you know, private lessons and what it does and what happens and whatever. And this lady, Amy Silly, said that one thing she has been noticing as of late is that there is a bigger problem with the students remembering from week to week and how memorization is a bigger problem than it was years ago. And that stopped me in my tracks for a minute. And I thought, you know, I think I see that and I don't know why. But 
yeah. So I think that's probably why so many, you know, language teachers are also struggling with students because we, so many classes are still based on memorization. But I thought that was interesting, that whole memorization. And I thought, well, if we ever needed another reason to go with comprehensible input and all of that good jazz in our classes rather than grammar rules and whatnot, right? It kind of goes together. In memorizing those vocabulary lists, I still look God. at those textbooks and those vocabulary lists and I'm like, there is no way that those poor babies can possibly learn all of those, all of that big, huge list. It's insane. Absolutely insane. Yeah. So yeah, that's true. Well, I don't know if you would call mine an aha moment, but a friend of mine. I wouldn't. No, move on. Find another one. All right. Maybe, maybe it's a ha ha moment. Not an maybe it moment. is. Well, actually, you guys might, you might find it a uh, ha ha moment. So I have an online high school class that I teach and I was listening to um, some of their, you know, submissions and I thought, what in the world is this? And this guy had actually submitted a recording of a computer reading the Spanish for him. It wasn't his voice even, you know, doing the Spanish. And I was like, how dumb do you think I am? I mean, it, it was mind boggling. But then a friend of mine said, oh, I bet he got the new iOS 14 phone update because it now comes with a new app that is a translator app. And so he showed it to me because he had updated his phone and that was the exact voice that he had submitted for his own work. And I just thought, wow, um, we are really going to have to, um, I mean, I, I, I really don't know what to do, but it, you know, everybody, when the semester started, they were all about how do we combat Google Translate, Google Translate, you know, and I don't know, I'm thinking it's on their phones. We're going to have to figure out some way to embrace, you know, maybe use of the translators because that, I mean, it's right there in their hand now. So I, we're going to have to figure something out. I think. Oh, we go back to one of the episodes where we talked about it and we actually give them tasks where they feel they don't have to do it. And I'm not saying that with like, you need to change it because I know we tried to rewrite that program, but they didn't let us do it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they messed it up. We did. We did a fabulous job with that because we were thinking like what you were talking about, Bill, you know, trying to bring them to that and get them to do it. And it's an online thing and then they can do it, although they're remote and this and that and whatnot. And they oh, butchered the whole thing. Well, one of the tasks is to record themselves <laughs> saying the alphabet backwards. And I was like, I can't even do that in English. I mean, I can't imagine. So what, what is the point? But anyway, I digress. So my Sounds like uh, a dement like a dementia test or something. I know, right? <laughs> let's, like, see if you, let's see if you all are like getting senile on us kids. Come on. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, I What I, day I, is it? Who's the president? Where do you live? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, say the alphabet backwards. I'm serious. I don't I can't do it in, in English. I, I can't imagine trying to do it in, you know, French, but Anyway, so yeah, so my aha moment is we are really going to have to rethink the whole online, uh, you know, translators. I, I don't know exactly what I think about it now, but it's right in the palm of their hand. So, anyway. you know, my earbuds for my phone and it's an Android. We're supposed to do instant translation. We never tried it to see how good they were, but mine is a Google phone. 
Ah, mm. so, yeah. maybe we need to try that. Do you have something you want to throw in, Bill? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm. I have the right kind of aha moment or not. But I'm going to go oh, way right. back in the vault okay, for myself because it. it was. It had to do with one of Krista's early questions in the in the show today. And I was a graduate student. I was. I was. I think it was my second year teaching. Um, and this is before I had really gotten the language acquisition. I was still steeped in those classic courses. They would, when I switched from Latin American studies, I had to take all these basic courses in, in Spanish, Hispanic linguistics and so on. And then also some French linguistics too. So history of the language and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I um, was teaching a fourth semester Spanish class and they had to do a reading. We were assigned, you know, those, I was a TA, I had to do what they told me to do. And so, and this was way back when, you know, many years ago. Um, and so they, I, I, we were reading, we were going over this reading in class and it occurred to me that none of the students understood the first sense of the reading. I went, what the heck's going on? And um, then um, it, the sentence was a classic Spanish sentence Spanish can mark objects with an ah. And the first sentence had an ah marked object that was fronted in the front of the sentence. So it's not the subject of the sentence, it's the object. And then it had uh, an object pronoun and it had the verb and the subject came after the verb. So it's basically an object verb subject type sentence in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why, don't my why, why are my students not understanding? Well, they, were, they didn't have any functional use for awe in their heads and you know, that awe didn't mean anything. that that case marker didn't mean anything for them and so they were basically all reading the sentence as subject verb object and that's why they this mm -hmm. the next sentence wasn't making sense and they're like well and i went ah oh, that's interesting then the next semester i took a child language acquisition course in the linguistics department with one of my favorite professors i've had in grad school i took two courses from her um one in child language acquisition one in syntax um and uh, we got to, um, early on, um, before we got to the linguistics of the cognitive foundations that people were doing back in the 60s and early 70s with child language acquisition. And, I, and we had to read work by a guy named Thomas Bever um, that he wrote in 1970. And he was summarizing some stuff that had already been done in the 60s with child language acquisition. And they were looking at little kids learning English and giving them passive sentences like the cow was kicked by the horse and they had to act it out with puppets. And these kids all were saying, instead of having the horse kick the cow, they had the cow kicking the horse. They were interpreting passive sentences like regular subject verb object sentences. Even though the cow was the subject, it was technically the object of the verb. It's the thing that's getting kicked. Mm -hmm. um, and light bulbs went off in my head and I went, holy crap, there's something universal going on here about the way people are processing languages, whether first language or second language. And I started to do some research and poking around and I was finding more and more evidence for something that eventually became part of my theory, input processing theory, which is called the first noun principle, which states that learners tend to tag the first noun or pronoun they encounter as the subject and agent of the sentence. Mm. And so it helped, it was an aha moment when I, those students were doing that. And it was kind of like my road to language acquisition, second language acquisition, coupled, I was able to next semester with that child language acquisition class, 
connect the two distinct semesters, one experience in one semester and experiences in, as a student learning about language acquisition, another connecting these two things and going, aha, something's going on here. Oh yeah, language acquisition. That's, <laughs> that's kind of how it got started because I started in linguistics and that's, that's my road to second language acquisition. Even though I was always interested in language stuff, was started by that course in first language acquisition and me starting to make connections about what I was seeing my learners, students do in my classes. So there you go. That's cool. I yeah. love that. Yeah. <clears throat> I cool. love that. Okay, so now we are gonna put you on the spot, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with one myself because I didn't think about it the other day when Krista and I did an episode on that. But, you know, errors, which is something we talked about it, it's important in the language acquisition, right? Not necessarily the correction of it, but we have to make them sometimes to kind of get beyond it. Like in anything, really, if we make a mistake, then we kind of typically learn from it. We don't repeat it. And so we've made some, and I have one. I don't know why I did not remember that one, but, and um, obviously French as an English learner, when before, I think it's before we were married with my husband, um, his dad had went through a period where he was very, very hoarse. He had lost his voice and it kept going. And so I'm talking to Chris and <laughs> I told you that one. I see you laughing over there. And I looked at him and I say, well, does your dad still sound like a horse? He <laughs> 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 like a horse and he died laughing, obviously. And eventually, you know, you know, had to explain to him, it's like, oh, you mean, is he still hoarse? And I was like, yeah, I mean, the sound was the same to me. So, yeah. So we still talk about it. Does this person still sound like a horse? Yeah. Yep. Nice mistake. So what mistakes have you made, Bill, that were that even maybe at the time or now you look back on and you're like, that was funny using that. And I never made that again. Or maybe you made it again. I don't know. I don't know. I can't, I think, I can't think of it. I'm trying to think of, because French is what I learned as a second line. I'm trying to think of French, something I did in French where something happened. Um, and, I, 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 and I knew this question was coming. And I can think of a classic one. I'm sure every learner French makes this at some point. I had to interview somebody on the phone. It was an assignment I was given in my French class. So I call this French speaker and there's a series of questions you had to ask. And I think they did it on purpose. You were given the questions in English and you had to ask it. So the, and so um, instead of cheveux, <laughs> you know what I did, right? You're laughing already, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and so instead of asking her, speaking of horse, instead of asking her what color her hair was, I asked her what color her horses were. In French, it's cheveux and chevaux, right? So, and so I, because I was like a second year student of French at the time. And I remember the woman on the phone goes, my what? <laughs> she goes, she goes, my quoi? And I went, and I repeated, I put, you know, horses, you know, in French. And she goes, and afterwards she goes, oh, you mean my hair? And then she said, you know, correctly in uh -huh. French. And I thought, did I get it wrong? And I, so that was one of those things that reverberated in my head for a while, the difference between Shiva and Shiva. So there you go. Yeah. No, I love that one. That is one that uh, actually one of my students recently made that mistake. And I was like, be careful. You're talking about your horse. That's right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that was funny. Although today, one of my students made a mistake that was quite amusing. Or 
poor babies. We had to work on the negations with the ne personne, ne rien, etc. Right? Nobody, no one. And they had to take a sentence and it was talking about nudists. And that was the sentence, nudists, and what do they not do? And so he did his sentence. And he's like, les nudistes ne portent personne. So <laughs> where's no one? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was like, well, you know, that's not part of my world. So I don't know how it works in that. But I think it still has to do with clothing. And he kind of laughed. I think he blushed a little bit more online. He was like, yeah, I got you. <laughs> so yeah. I love that. Absolutely. That was, yeah, one of those. But, you know, it's all But I mean, we fun. all we have all made mistakes, though. That's the oh, thing. Lord. Everybody's made mistakes. And you just have to kind of embrace it, laugh about it and move on. Absolutely. We, we've all survived these horrible mistakes that we've made. Oh, yeah. Go find the show that came out last week on Thursday where we talk about some of the mistakes we've made. We've got some big ones. Yeah. <laughs> and we survived them and now they're out for the world to listen. But anyway, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time um, to talk with us about this topic, which is very important, error correction, because like Krista said, when we started, it's a hot button and people are very much stuck on that. And um, talking about various aspects of teaching. And I could, love could when I, you talk can about... I say, can I make... I'm sorry, Santine, to interrupt yeah, you, but no, can ahead. I make go one ahead. final comment about error correction? Go mm -hmm. for it. It's the term error. If we get rid of the term error, <laughs> we might make some headway. I mean, nobody talks about children making errors. Some do. They just talk about mm -hmm. baby talk or whatever. But, but errors is an evaluative statement on what someone is doing, mm -hmm. as opposed to you know, a non-native construction or a non-target-like construction. Even target-like I don't like because it assumes that you know, we're all headed for the same target. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I, I talk to my students, my graduate students and people, my language teaching students, like teacher ed students, to try to get them away from talking about errors and say, start thinking about your learners and learners. They're not students making errors. They're learners creating non-native structures. Hmm. And, and that's, that's what's going on in their heads. Um, and so, um, anyway. That, so I was going to just throw that in there. I forgot to throw that in earlier. So I'm going to sneak it in because she said error. So there. No, no, no. That's <laughs> perfectly fine. So what, what do we replace it with? Blonde moments? That's what I say. I have blonde moments. Well, no, he's no. saying creating non-native structures. Structures. Yep. Yeah. You create non-native structures. So for example, like the student who says, you know, Juan es aquí, where John is here and says, Juan está aquí. That, that's We've researched set in a start ad nauseum in the L2 stuff in Spanish that this is a stage everybody goes through. Mm -hmm. Not just Americans, Chinese, learn, French learners go through this too. Um, in learning Spanish, you go through a stage where all your copular constructions are made with the verb ser and estar is not quite there yet. And so um, that's just a non-native structure. It's not an error because that's what the system is. Mm. Errors are, to me, when you do something you know you shouldn't do. Right. Like if mm -hmm. I don't stop at a stop sign, that's an error. <laughs> I did that purposely, you know. Right. Not a mistake, it's an error. I committed an error. Mm. So, and language learners aren't making errors. They're just 
using the system they have in their heads that's evolving. So you can call it an evolving structure, a non-native structure, call it a transitional structure. I don't know. Yeah, those are good. I Something, like anything other than error. Maybe we should have a contest. That's one for your podcast. Sometimes say, by the end of the year, we want a new term for error. So we're going to have every week, somebody has to send one in and then we pull it out of a hat, see which which one we like the best. There you go. There you go. But if we can get rid of that word error, I think that's going to help people to reconceptualize those things. So, I mean, error is very punitive. So it is, I guess Mm -hmm. like sin, Uh, get, um, want me to get my thesaurus Mm -hmm. out and look up error right now for you. So so show you what all the uh, synonyms are for (laughs) it's not pretty anyway. So Sundreen, I interrupted your concluding remarks. I'm sorry, but that is fun. You triggered, you triggered my thought processes. Sorry. Hey, Anytime, anytime. Um, So I was just saying, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about this very hot button topic, very important on a lot of people's minds, helping us bridging that theory to the practice. And you've crafted a lot of the theory, so who better to to get the practice on there? And um, so we, we really appreciate it, enjoyed it, and Anytime you want to come back and talk with us, just let us know. You've got the link. You can just hop on anytime. That link is live. <laughs> there you so, go. I guess until May, after May, it goes away. Yeah. I guess. Well, if you think of a good topic to you want me for, just let me know. I'm around working at home. So. All right. Excellent. Excellent. I wonder if we can work in like musicals and language learning. <laughs> Oh, look at him think. Look at him think. Those wheels are turning. Yeah, might have to think about that. There you go. There you go. All righty. Well, if you, um, if you have any comments, questions, or complaints, maybe not too many complaints, um, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter at Into Mondays, or um, you can email us at stepintomondays at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Yep. And that's a wrap. Alunity. Okay. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thank you. Hasta lunes. (laughs)